Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with Barbara Pierce about her epic rescue and turnaround leadership of Connecticut Hospice. Welcome to The Indispensables. I am so glad to have Barbara Pierce here today as a guest. Um, she is uh, well known in our hometown community of New Haven. Uh, she grew up in greater New Haven area and uh, you know, she has J a JD and an MBA from Harvard. She was a, a lawyer at Skadden, which is, you know, one of the big uh, fancy firms. Uh, she's done a lot of things. She's uh, run a family real estate business and raised a family. Um, and she's now here um, as, a, as a CEO of Connecticut Hospice. So for those who don't know about hospice, that's an incredible mission-driven organization. Uh, and Barbara Pierce has uh, taken over as CEO in, uh, at the end of January 2019. Uh, and she is, uh, uh, sees herself as a turnaround CEO. Um, and uh, it's, it's just such a privilege to have you here today, Barbara. Welcome to The Indispensables. Thank you, Bruce. I'm so happy to be here, um, especially knowing uh, so much about your work from reading your books and having um, been to a course. Um, it's exciting to be working with you. Well, uh, it's uh, uh, it's mutual. So, uh, uh, but uh, you know, and 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 I've been a, an admirer from from a distance until I finally got the courage to uh, to make the introduction and get to know you. Um, but you are uh, uh, you have a storied career, and uh, you are uh, well known in this community. Uh, but for the listeners who don't know about you and your background, what, what's your story? How, how did you get to where you are now? So um, I define myself in a Yale-dominated community as a townie. So I'm from the region, and um, I, when I got out of high school, I thought, you know, anywhere but New Haven, and thought Harvard sounded like it was far away. Um, and I went to Harvard College, um, and when I finished, I decided to go to the business school, and I was going to take some time off and one of my professor's husband was the head of the MBA program. And he said, you know, at this time, you, uh, as a woman with a liberal arts background, cause my background was in psychology. Um, he said, you, you'll just be a secretary somewhere. You should just go now. So I went, um, and the beginning of business school is a lot like, I know you do a lot with the military. They call it the West point of capitalism. I mean, it's a lot like boot camp, and, um, it was so miserable at the very beginning. I was 21 years old and I drove to New Haven and, and on my 22nd birthday in the pouring rain, I took the LSATs because I thought I got to have a backup plan. Um, and I applied to Harvard Law School, forgot all about it uh, as the year went on and then got in and um, got into the JD MBA program and Harvard just assumed I would do it. So they, you know, and all my friends got their second year assignments. I got my first year one uh, L courses, and I, I went to law school, and it's easier to be a lawyer first, so I did that. I was getting married um, the week of graduation, and my husband-to-be was at a Boston law firm because he had been a year ahead of me at all three places, 
I took a job at the Staden Boston office um, with my very good friend who said, they, I'm, I've been here for the summer, they're hiring one more person, why don't you make it you? Uh, so I went there, it was a wonderful place. Um, it was small then for you know Skadden, it was 200 lawyers, 10 in Boston. You know, it just was such a, um, a rat race and, and there were no women partners at Skadden when I started and nobody with kids. And um, a lot of my business school friends had thought that, you know, being um, your own boss was the, you know, best thing you could do. Um, and so I moved back to New Haven with my Boston area husband kicking and screaming. He went to the biggest law firm in New Haven, which was still a lot smaller than his firm in Boston. Um, and we proceeded to um, live in downtown New Haven for the next 20 years. I worked in a family business. Um, selling and developing real estate um, and had kids at the same time. And my, as one of my friends says about me, my life is balanced because I do everything to excess. So I know a lot of people um, decide that they're going to, you know, first they're going to work and then they're going to give back or first they're going to raise a family, then they're going to work, then they're going to give back. And I sort of always felt the need to do everything at the same time. So, you know, New Haven is a small place, as you know, and I got, on boards very quickly. You know, the first one I went on was the Long Wharf Theater Board because they asked my father and he said, I don't know anything about theater, but my daughter will do it. And I got on the um, Hospital of St. Rayfield board because, you know, somebody said we better grab her because her father's on the Yale board and, you know, she'll end up on that one. So anyway, I just ended up on a lot of boards and um, ended up chairing probably a dozen of them over the next 30 years. Um, and some of them were turnarounds and some of them were challenging in all kinds of ways. And one of the last ones I did, I sort of did, I got asked to come in as, I can't come in from the outside as the chair because there was nobody on the board who could do it. Um, and I built a new board. So I, I kind of learned from each experience, some piece of organizations and some of them were bigger, like the, you know, the Connecticut Business and Industry Association is the country's largest chamber of commerce basically and that had you know 10,000 members or something and St. Rayfield's had a lot of employees and some of the things I did were small some were arts some were healthcare um so I did all those things and I'd been running the business and um I we moved out to the shoreline our kids you know left actually at the exact same time went to boarding school and went to college um, and, you know, and I started to look around and think, what else can I do? And I did a couple of consulting jobs. And then I got asked if I would come out to hospice and um, to tell them what their real estate was worth. So I took an agent with me and I had a history with hospice. My mother was a Yale nurse and I grew up thinking the best thing you could be in life was, was a Yale nurse. And Connecticut hospice is actually the country's first hospice. And it was started by the dean of the Yale School of Nursing who must have been with my mom. I mean, they were both army nurses. They both taught at Yale School of Nursing. They were about the same time. They must have known each other, but I just never asked my mother that. So I, I felt this kind of um, affinity with um, hospice. And they said to me after I told, you know, talked about real estate, they said, would you consider being on our board? And I had looked at the financials and I had, you know, looked at the, I said, no, no. Um, this place is going down. Um, and, and they said, well, we do need to hire you, but we can't hire you because we don't have a CEO and we're in the market for an interim CEO. And I will never know what made me say, 
you know, how long do you need one for? And they said a year probably. And I said, well, I will throw my hat in the ring because I can't do anything to save this place as a board member. I really don't think, but I could, you know, try as the person in charge. So I sent my resume in and they interviewed me and um, they offered me the job. And I thought about it for a little while and I asked my office, I got them all together and I said, I got offered the chance to run the Connecticut hospice and try and turn it around. Do you think I should do it? And we're a very philanthropic community-based um, place. And they said, yes, you should do this. And so they all knew about it. And, um, and so I started that same week. And you know, I met with the whole staff and said, I can tell you this, I, don't, I can promise you that I'll be honest and I'll tell you the truth and I'll be fair. I can't promise you that I'll succeed. I can't promise you that I won't do things that you don't like. In fact, if I don't do anything you don't like, I won't have done enough. Um, this place needs a lot of changes and uh, a lot of cutting and a lot of painful choices have to be made. Um, and they clapped, no matter what I told them in those first few months, they just clapped. They said, I'm taking away some of your PTO time and they clapped. I said, I'm you know, cutting salaries and they clapped. I mean, they just were really, it's a mission driven place and they wanted it to survive um, and they understood it would be tough. Were they clapping because they were hearing a strong leader telling them the truth and they were gaining confidence that maybe you could turn this institution around, this incredibly important mission-driven institution that maybe many of them were aware was in, in danger of, of closing? Yes. I mean, some of the employees said to me that every day they came to work, they expected the doors to be padlocked. Um, it, it was clear. I mean, the institution was losing $15,000 a day when I got here. Um, and at some point in that previous year, we sort of pinpointed the low. It had $10,000 in the bank and $10 million in debt. So there was no possible way. It, it, they were only paying their payroll. They weren't paying any of their other expenses. There were lawsuits. There were you know, creditors calling all the time. So yes, I think, I think they were sort of looking for a miracle, you know, and they, um, they wanted to finish their careers at Connecticut Hospice. A lot of them were lifers um, and they knew that it wasn't going to be easy, but uh, they wanted to believe that I could help. It had not been run in any kind of open way. They knew nothing about the financials, even the top managers knew nothing about their numbers, um, not, not only anybody else's, but their own. They had no business plans. They had no accountability. They had no, you know, goals. They, uh, they didn't meet. Uh, the, the whole thing was just um, probably like I would expect the Kremlin or the Vatican or something. And so I was offering something very different. And in retrospect, Bruce, probably the most important thing was I said that I would be fair. And I, when I said I was rolling salaries back and PTO time back, I said, look, I've looked at all this stuff and I can't figure out why people got the raises that they got. And I can't figure out why some people have used all their PTO time and some, most people have used none. There's, I think there's an error in the system. I'm going to roll everybody back 14 months and we'll go from there. And if you think that you deserve your new pay rate or your PTO, you can come and see me, but I'm going to take everybody's excess PTO and put it in an extended sick leave bank that you can draw on later, which ironically turned out to be helpful during COVID. Um, but 
it was actually important that we did those kinds of things and that people make those sacrifices. I should also say that the person who had been running it originally had been there for 40, not the founder, but the next person had been there 40 years. She had left in May and the person who took over who was her number two had suddenly died right after Labor Day, um, who was replaced by the chief medical officer who had never had any management experience at all. So I was the fourth CEO in a year and it was very hard to get information about why anybody thing was the way it was. So um, I had a lot of latitude to make changes um, and they had to be sweeping. And I told them to the extent I could, I would do them all at once. Barbara, how many, how many people are we talking about? What's the uh, number of employees you were? 250. 250. And how many beds are there? Um, 52 beds. And then most of the people are out, you know, our home hospice care patients. So we do a lot of home care. Yeah. And just cause, cause I want to give people perspective for, can you just, uh, it, you said it's a mission driven organization, but here's 250 some people They're They're going to work every day. They're worried that the, 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 the doors might be padlocked because of the financial crisis. There have been four, uh, CEOs here. You come in like the cavalry and they're hoping for a miracle. Well, you know, somebody who's um, uh, sees the opposite of New Haven as Harvard and somebody whose backup plan for um, Harvard Business School was Harvard Law School when you were just a kid, um, you know, okay, that sounds like miracle might be possible. Uh, so uh, given given who you are and if anyone was asking around in this community, you would say, oh, that might be a miracle. But just to be clear, uh, the miracle you were trying to perform was saving what is really a miraculous organization with a profound mission. And for, for those who don't know, can you just quickly explain? And then I want to go back to your turnaround story because I love the meticulous detail with which you are speaking about it because most people don't have a chance to hear this kind of detail about a turnaround. But, but just quickly, can you explain what hospice does and what hospice, Connecticut hospice it's rich history. So, um, I, Bruce, it's, um, it differs a little bit from place to place. We're unusual in that we hold three licenses. We have a home health care and home hospice license, uh, and we have an inpatient hospice license, and we are also licensed as an acute care specialty hospital. Uh, so I think we're the only ones in the country with that license. And um, I just recently had to find for some other government agency the place in the Omnibus Tax Act of 1987 where it said Connecticut hospice shall be permanently exempt from the following rules that apply to other hospices. Um, so uh, we, we were always different. Um, Florence Wald, our founder, um, spent a year at St. Christopher's in London, which was the first hospice in the world, and she came back with the idea that dying people deserve to be treated differently. For those, and there probably aren't many people on this call old enough to remember when people weren't routinely told what their diagnosis was or their prognosis. Um, and she believed very strongly that people should know if they were dying, that they should be able to make choices about how that took place, that their family should be involved and that they should be able to have closure and dignity and that they shouldn't die alone, afraid or in pain. What, what you're really talking about is helping people die with more dignity and less pain. 
Yes, and I, I said once in an interview and thought maybe it was hyperbole, but not entirely, that a, a good death is as important as a good life. And, you know, that may not be entirely true, but it is true that, you know, people's feeling of having control when they have no control over their bodies and having them feel a sense of closure is is incredibly important to patients and their families. And we saw a lot of this in COVID because we've all heard so many stories about people dying afraid and alone in hospitals without any family members. Um, and so hospice, which originally took care of cancer patients, eventually has expanded to take care of all kinds of, of patients. In fact, in the conditions of participation for Medicare, it says you shall not discriminate on the basis of diagnosis. Um, so we were the first people in the United States, Connecticut Hospice, to be able to um, get Medicare reimbursement for what we did. Um, and that started in 1983. The facility in Brantford that pre-dated um, this one um, opened in 1979. And Bruce, because I know you love theater, um, the Pulitzer Prize-winning play, The Shadow Box, which premiered at Long Wharf Theater, um, was based on Connecticut Hospice. It was written about families that were at Connecticut Hospice. It's just such a, a spectacular mission, and and in fact, the location. You know, for people who are people of faith, I, I happen to be one. And uh, looking out the window at uh, the bay there at the 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 Long Island Sound, and you know, I know the experience of losing my mother was made easier by hospice, and I know that's true for for tens of thousands or, or more of people. So I just wanted, for those who don't know about hospice and how important it is and that the work you're doing is truly, in my opinion, God's work and that you came in two years ago to perform a miracle that's a business miracle, but for an organization that performs miracles in people's lives and in their dying every single day, I just, for those who, who, are listening to you and thinking, well, she sounds superhuman, which, you know, I've met you, so I can confirm that. What you're doing is so important. And so I want people to understand the stakes of this turnaround that you are describing in meticulous detail, just like a Harvard MBA. <laughs> well, I feel very lucky, Bruce. And I, you know, I'll get to that later about how lucky, even luckier I feel during COVID. But, um, you know, we have you know, since we used to be a corporate headquarters, our patients are on the second floor and our offices are on the first and third. And, you know, every day, you know, I walk through the second floor and think to myself, you know, how important is what I'm really worried about? You know, and it's, I obviously worry that hospice is important, but if something is bothering me that's not important, that's a quick reality check. You know, I'm not in a bed on the second floor. Um, and, and it's also surprising that it's not a depressing place at all. Um, because we are really all engrossed in the work that we're doing and feel it's important and are proud to be doing it. And I feel very lucky to be here. Um, just yesterday, for instance, we all dropped what we were doing because a patient wanted to get married and we needed to find a way to get a marriage license when the town hall was closed. And I said, well, that's a Joe Mooney thing because it's town of Brantford. But I mean, we do a lot of things for people at the end of their lives um, that wouldn't be possible if we didn't have, you know, this setting and these resources. And, you know, hospice provides bereavement services for family members for 13 months. Um, hospice does provide support. We have arts therapy. We, you know, we, I just was talking to a volunteer that was getting vaccinated who makes 
videos of people's life stories so that they can leave them for their family. Um, he done he, his particular favorite was a, a a tail gunner on the Enola Gay in World War you know in, when uh, when uh, Japan was bombed. So he you know we do a lot of things that's things that are outside the ordinary but that do make a difference to people and it just is a constant reminder of what really matters in life. Our our catchphrase is we can't add days to your life but we add life to your days. So when you go to hospice, you end up with, um, you know, we're not doing things to prolong your life. People here are 98% of the time DNR, and they are not trying to live longer. They're trying to live better at the end of their lives. And there was a story that happened before I got here, but I just love it about a guy who didn't have a family and he came here and there's something called the hospice bump that when you get here and you get this kind of attention, you often get better for a while. And he did, he got better for a while and he got very involved with other patients and their families. And, um, he had, he had roommates and he got to know them and, um, he, he got very involved in the arts and he, at the end of his life, when he really was dying, he said, you know, I came here to die and I learned how to live. Wow. That's, uh, <clears throat> that's really, uh, moving. And, um, Okay, so here you are. Uh, let me take you back to your turnaround story. So you come in, you tell them, all right, I'm going to do all this stuff in six. Uh, I got I to do a fundamental re-examination of the business over six weeks. You have 250 some employees. Uh, you walk in the door, you're losing $15,000 a day. Um, and, and you have to do this turnaround miracle. And so can, can you take us through what were the what were the big things that you had to do? And how did you managed to keep getting a round of applause from the employees who, I mean, really, you know, it sounds like you're saying, I'm going to turn this place upside down and inside out, but I'm going to be honest with you and I'm going to be fair. Yes. Well, I think, you know, that's the point about it being mission driven. So on the, at the end of the six weeks, I had, I decided that I needed to cut 30, about 25 jobs at right at once. And, you know, high, mostly high level jobs and um, not because of the people. In other words, I wasn't getting rid of people. I was eliminating job functions. Um, and I called people in and the person who was helping me is, you know, you always have to have people doing this in teams kept saying, you know, I'll, I'll set the things half an hour apart. And I said, people don't hear anything. Once you say your job's been eliminated, we'll be done in five minutes every time promise. But the part I didn't realize was that with one exception, Every other person shook my hand and said, I hope you save hospice. So that's pretty extraordinary. You know, it, that wasn't about me. That was about how they felt about the institution. I did, I actually got Yale New Haven and Gaylord Hospital, which is another specialty hospital, um, to run a job fair in the conference room for people who were being displaced. You know, I, I mean, a lot of people, you know, knew that that would probably happen to their jobs. Um, because it had been a steady slide for the last, you know, five or six years before I got here. Um, so we did that and we cut like, so we cut about $3 million out of the budget. I started raising money. We raised about $3 million. Um, and we just looked at, I mean, we changed everything. We changed every professional advisor. We changed all kinds of things, all kinds of vendors. And then we made plans to pay people back. So for instance, we owed, um, a hospital almost a million dollars. And um, we had a, a bequest from a family that was about a million dollars. 
that was tied up in court. And I'm really annoyed about this because it's still tied up in court, some of it. But we turned in, you know, we got rid of all the cars that hospice owned. We, I thought about selling the artwork and that just turned out not to be really worth it. So we, did, we didn't make cuts in things that um, touched patients. We made cuts in everything else. Um, and then, you know, at the almost exactly the one year mark, COVID hit. And COVID was just a complete, as you know, bolt from the blue. No one expected this. COVID turned out to be a trial by fire in a whole different kind of way. Because hospice deals with mostly elderly people, obviously, um, we have an older than normal staff, and it tends to be a calling that comes to people later in their careers. So we had a lot of older nurses who were at higher risk. And, you know, we had taken care of, as I said, cancer papers patients when people thought cancer could be catching AIDS patients, um, you know, SARS patients, all kinds of things. But in this case, um, people were really frightened and we lost one third of our workforce, including 39% of our nurses in 90 days um, in the second quarter of, of 2020. Um, so we were just scrambling from the get-go. Um, and it was a really interesting lesson for me because I said to people, I'm split screening all the time. You know, I'm doing so much Zoom, but my brain now is like a Zoom screen with all these little pieces of it in different directions. So I'm thinking about what's going to happen next and what's happening now and what might make a difference. What could we run out of? We even made plans for stuff like what happens if like phone systems go down and we can't call on landlines and, you know, when the power keeps going out and we did all kinds of like emergency prep work. But I, for instance, called all the hospitals and boarding schools um, in the region and, and private schools and said, do you have PPE? Because we don't own it normally in the way that hospitals do because we don't do procedures. And it's, you know, masks are now 15 times what they were before COVID. And, you know, we need to get all this stuff. And actually theaters made masks for me when we were using homemade masks. And, you know, friends of mine had relatives in China that could get stuff. And um, I got it from a lot of schools. I, I got PPE from a lot of places that had sent their students home. Um, so we, I, I thought if I got enough, uh, enough PPE to get through to the summer, that that would give us some breathing room to worry about other things. So I did that in the first, in March, I got enough PPE to last us till June or July, which turned out to be a big deal. Cause you know, most people, you know, it, it's the, it's the, you know, business equivalent of spending all your time looking for toilet paper. So then we moved on to trying to hire more people. So for instance, I called all the nursing schools and I said, I see that in New York, they're letting doctors out of medical school early and allowing them to go to work without their licenses. If that happens in Connecticut, do you have people who will come to work here? And I called, I got actually our moonlighting residents to one of them said, yes, he could come full time because I, I had to be able to replace the medical director if he got COVID. So the, you know, the resident from Yale got permission from his department to come and be our temporary medical director if our medical director got, got COVID. Um, and we really were able to focus on other things. And we, so we, we made a lot of guesses about what might happen down the road. And that turns out in this kind of crisis to be really important. You have to think, you know, a month, three months, six months down the road, am I going to run out of cash? Am I going to run out of 
PPE? Am I going to run out of nurses? Am I going to run out of this or that or the other thing? And, you know, we hired people whose job was to go around and wipe down, you know, elevator buttons and stairwells and things like that. And we did for a short time eliminate visitors and then, and we eliminated all our volunteers. So then I had to hire staff to do what the volunteers used to do. And we had 425 volunteers and, and Medicare requires that 5% of your work be done by volunteers. Um, so we lost all of them. Um, so we hired people, we ended up hiring a couple volunteers as employees, but we hired people to roll beds down, all our beds roll outside. And so by the time the weather got nice, we could allow people to visit outside when we couldn't allow them to visit inside. But at the very beginning, they could at least go downstairs and we have this whole glass wall in the cafeteria and their family could be on the other side of the wall. So we had a lot of very moving things like people who hadn't seen their family, their loved one in weeks and weeks would meet the ambulance and you know they'd be sobbing to see the person. Our very first COVID patient came in uh, comatose and dying and left like a month later and went home. You know, at the beginning, people were very frightened of it. And that was a tough time because, you know, we didn't know how to reassure people. We didn't know much more than they did. I started doing Zoom town halls and I got people I knew actually from the real estate world mostly that I, you know, I'd met them because somebody in my office had sold them a house or something. So I had the dean of the Yale School of Public Health and this guy, Howie Foreman, who's an advisor to the Biden campaign on COVID, who teaches at the medical school, the school of management and the school of public health. And they addressed in two separate meetings, our entire staff about, you know, what would go on, you know, what, what we should do and shouldn't do, you know, what was safe and what wasn't safe. And, you know, we, we had, you know, we had to make a lot of tough decisions, but our job was to keep people safe. And we were worried actually that if, you know, COVID got in the building, that we have a population that's like a nursing home population. Although, as it turns out, when you think about it, our average length of stay is four or five days. So as it really turned out, it was the staff that was vulnerable. The patients themselves weren't here long enough to get COVID. Um, but, but I mean, of course, what you're describing here, this COVID emergency that we, we all have lived through together, although certainly not in uh, the, the kind of uh, with the stakes that, that you were um, uh, processing it. Um, but this is all happening just not much more than a year after you took over an organization that was in a terrible financial crisis. So here, uh, you're, you're just getting the organization back on its feet and then you're hit with, uh, the, the pandemic. Yes. And, um, by then I had already turned over a lot of the management staff, so I'm just going through 2021 20, goals with managers and I've got like 20 top managers and only a handful are doing the same job they were doing when I got here or, and were with the organization in a lot of cases. So, you know, like for instance, one of the people that has the same job had just taken over as director of nursing um, right when I came. So, but, but most people have been, you know, moved, expanded, contracted, uh, or have left. And, you know, I used to say at every meeting, you know, this is a train. We're not at the last station yet. If this is the station you want to get off, I understand, you know, we'll say goodbye. We'll miss you, but 
don't feel you have, if you don't, if you're not up for change, you can't stay because we have to change. They were very siloed. So when I met with them in the first week, I asked every manager the same question, which was, you're at hospice, it's a blizzard. You have uh, one vehicle that can get out. You can bring in five people, five other employees that will help you run the place. And that's all you're gonna get. What five people would you use to run this place? And Bruce, it was fascinating, the people who couldn't think outside the box. So, you know, a lot of them would say, well, I'd have to bring someone to plow the parking lot. One person kept saying, I, I, I would be one of them. And I kept saying, you're already here, you know, like, but she couldn't think of five people. But anyway, the people that they mentioned appeared over and over and over again. And now that I've been here long enough, I realized that those were the people that weren't siloed. Um, and I was trying to get everybody not to be siloed. I, you know, I work with them and you were part of it, Bruce, because I tried to bring in resources to teach them how to manage. So I, I told you I had a COVID story. So when it came time for the vaccine, I hired back uh, a young nurse um, who had gone to another um, competitor and, and came back and he, he wanted a career um, that went beyond just bedside nursing. He wanted to get into management. So he applied to be infection control uh, nurse and we hired him and he started right before COVID. Uh, no, he actually started during COVID. And um, he was put in charge of trying to find out whether we were entitled to get the vaccine, how to get it, whatever. So, so James um, spent a lot of time like on webinars with the government, whatever, and he figured out the process and he got all the paperwork. Um, and so he managed, so he ha I went on something and found out the time was of the essence. So I kind of got on board and he stayed with me and he you know, did all the paperwork with me. I mean, he did all the process with me online. And then he somehow got the medical director to fill out the paperwork. He got us in line, he called every day. So anyway, we got it and we vaccinated our staff the week of Christmas. And we, you know, we had to do people who were quarantined and people who had COVID and other people um, at the, toward the end. And as I said, we just finished this morning, but the difference between that process and the way we used to do things is that James, who's young and new to management, understood that his job was to get everyone vaccinated. His job was not to listen to webinars and find out the process. His job was not to call the state and ask what we were gonna get. His job was not to make sure that like HR had a waiver, you know, so that people would sign the waiver if they didn't wanna take it or whatever. His job was to get us to herd immunity. To get, to get the vaccine into people's arms. That's right. And so, you know, when you're reading all these stories now about places that are throwing it out and whatever, I mean, you have to know that not only does it come and it has to be refrigerated and we have, you, you probably read about the one where the freezer broke and we never maintained anything here. And the idea that the freezer would break was so clear to us that we ordered a new refrigerator just to store it. Um, but, you know, the number of missteps that can go on in this process are huge. And, you know, it's a competition, which is a great thing among states now. And Connecticut is third in the country in getting the vaccine into people's arms. And so, you know, what they're doing is they're, you know, they're working with and rewarding people who are able to get that done. So we did a lot. We, we called together people who worked outside of the building. We did town halls. You know, we did a lot of things to try to make sure that we could 
when we got it, um, we would be ready to go. In fact, the most controversial thing we did, and you certainly could have another opinion about this, Bruce, is in the first thing we sent out, um, we said it was going to be mandatory. And the like the roof came off the building as people said, you can't do this. Now, the flu vaccine is mandatory and, you know, without a religious or medical exemption. And this was going to be the same. And I, I knew in the end I couldn't do it. You know, what was I going to do? Tie people down? Um, I knew I could, I, I know legally I could make it mandatory. I talked to lawyers. I talked to organizations and, you know, HR hotlines and whatever. I knew I could do it. Logistically, it's very hard for people to do. But what I wanted to do was to make sure that when the vaccine came on December 22nd, people didn't start with the, I need to talk to my doctor, I need to think about this, I, I want to know more about it. In other words, I wanted them to know whether they were going to do it or not. So this is an illustration of how uh, you're almost two years in as a leader. Um, you inherited an organization that was in financial crisis um, with huge accountability problems, with constant turnover at the top. You've transformed the organization. Um, you're still there, although you had thought it would be just an interim job. And uh, thank God you are, because now you've got um, a whole crew of employees and uh, volunteers who have been vaccinated. And are you are now still delivering this mission of helping people die with less pain and more dignity. And that is, uh, that is really incredible and is a good proof point for how important it is to be a person of integrity and character and mission uh, and to take, I mean, <laughs> I could only imagine somebody with your energy, if you didn't have integrity and a mission driven approach, uh, man, you could be dangerous. Let me ask as we're, as we're, uh, closing out here, um, what's your advice to people? If you take somebody aside and say, Hey, okay, here's my best career advice for you. Here's, uh, you know, somebody looks at you and says, how could I possibly get to be somebody like you? Um, what's your, what's your advice for people? Um, well, I think first of all, you have to embrace like learning and, and want to, that, that, that to me, one of the best things about this job was I learned a whole new field. I keep saying at the end, I'm going to go into Yale New Haven as a, and I'm going to pretend to be a doctor and no one's going to catch me. You know, you have to learn like all the lingo and whatever, but you know, I think you have to, it's, it's the kind of job you do at the end of your career. Everybody should do something different in their life. You shouldn't keep doing the same thing all the time. It gets old. And so, you know, this was my chance. Like when I was in law school and business school, we did this capstone project where you had to do one, you know, big thing at the presentation at the end of the four years to kind of pull everything together. And I view this as my capstone career project because it uses everything I ever learned from everything I ever did. And I, I'm having to get help from everyone I ever knew. Um, you know, they, I sort of joke that I got hired for my Rolodex. Um, and so they, I think that's true. And then I think you also have to have certain things I've been teaching them about resilience and, you know, I, I haven't even gotten into the issues with the government and whatever, which is sort of the last big piece I have to deal with. But and I'm in the middle of that now. And I work Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. A shout out to Dick Blumenthal, who was on the phone with me on Christmas. But um, but I want to 
say that um, you need to kind of keep yourself going. And every day on the way to work, I used to say to myself, you can do anything for a year, which actually turned out I'm doing it for longer. Um, and I would say, bring your, your best self, be the person you want to be, be the boss you want to be. And I actually have corrected mistakes from like prior periods of my life. I actually got to start over, which is great. And then the third thing I said was practice gratitude. You just have to be grateful all the time for the things people do for you. And most people will do what you ask them to do. Um, so, you know, I'm trying to like have kind of mantras that work for me and, you know, keep things in perspective and juggle balls and whatever. And it's not really multitasking. It's really more pivoting every five minutes from some big problem to some completely different other big problem. So you do have to have a lot of energy and you do have to have some appetite for um, the unknown and stress and that kind of stuff. But you have to embrace the part of it that's new um, and, and just be grateful. I mean, this is a wonderful place to work. Can you imagine all the people that like had to start working from their living room or whatever and, and didn't have, I get to do the same thing pretty much I always did. I was an essential worker. I got to come to work every day. I got to do meaningful work um, that was the same as before with a group of people who was very PPE compliant. And so my life, you know, all I do is work and go running and sleep and I can do all those things. Well, so, uh, so much of what you bring to the table, nobody can imitate, but to embrace what's new and, uh, and, and make it your own. And so that you are such an expert that, uh, you could be mistaken, uh, in your case for a doctor, uh, make it your own, embrace what's new, become an expert, um, and, uh, be okay with the uncertainty. That's, that's, that's pretty good takeaway advice. And, uh, Barbara Pierce, thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. It was my pleasure, Bruce. And thank you for doing what you do. And I just have to, again, thank you for coming in uh, by Zoom to hospice and and teaching everybody a little bit about accountability, um, you know, from your latest book. And, and they're still talking about it. So thank you. Well, it was my, uh, my honor and pleasure. And, uh, and I will say on behalf of myself and my family, thank you so much for the work that you do. Okay, Bruce, I look forward to the time when we can meet again in person. In our next episode, I'll talk with Dennis Berger, who's the chief culture officer for the construction behemoth, Suffolk. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.